So I've got a, uh, uh, a close friend of mine, uh, a guy who lives in Richland, uh, and uh, just uh, a guy that I got to know uh, while we were there for the 13 years that we were there, and his name is uh, Dr. Rick. I've got a picture of him here. Maybe you recognize him. Um, <coughs> actually, that's not a picture of Rick. That's actually Einstein, Albert Einstein. Uh, but uh, Dr. Rick reminds me a lot of Albert Einstein because Dr. Rick wa ha had his doctorate in physics. So he would be able to have a conversation with this man and they'd be able to understand each other, you know, unlike maybe most of us. Uh, but Rick was an, he's an amazing guy. I mean, I just love Rick. He, he's one of these guys that are just, he's a rare individual, right? I mean, just one of those guys you just never forget if you meet him. He uh, is still living in the 60s as a hippie. And, and so he's got long hair. He wears, you know, clothes that are just kind of, you know, that's definitely hippie clothes that he wears. Uh, I remember one time I, I, he happened to swing in the church, and I happened to be there. And he didn't think anybody was going to be at the church. And he, he has this tight shirt on, a, a sunflower on it, the big sun. I mean, it was like just classic, like with, with jeans that were cut, you know, and all the strings were you know, short, you know, jean short. Oh, I was just, anyway, this is a guy, but he's awesome, right? I mean, just the funnest guy. He was part of my youth staff the whole time I was there. Uh, and, and just, I have so many amazing stories. You want to hear some funny stories? I've got some funny stories about this guy. And, uh, and, and, and but yet, he's this fun, unassuming, just kind of, you would never guess that he's brilliant, but he is. He's got a doctorate in physics, right? I mean, he just understands, I mean, his brain, the way it works is so different than mine, right? And so uh, just after I met him, uh, we started to kind of get together every other month or so, and we would do lunch together and just kind of getting to know each other and different th th things. And so as we were doing this pretty early on in our relationship, I found out, we started somehow got on the conversation of the theory of relativity, Right? And, uh, and so he starts talking about it like, you know, no big deal, right? He just kind of, and, and uh, you got theory of relativity is pretty complex, right? I mean, it's not an easy thing to understand, but this guy's got it, right? And so, I mean, really before I started talking to him, I didn't e even, I mean, theory of relativity, I heard of it, but I had no idea what it was about, right? I mean, it's just like, okay, I've heard of that, some of this Albert Einstein guy, I heard of him, but I had no idea. So anyway, he takes over the next year or so, he begins, every time we get to lunch, he begins to try to explain it to me. Because I'm like, I want to, okay, I want to understand this. I mean, this is complex. I don't get it. Help me to understand it. And so we'd get together for lunch, and he'd be drawn on, you know, different pieces of paper trying to tell me and explain it to me and interact with me about this. And, and I remember there were several times. We'd be sit there at lunch, and I'd be going, oh, I get it. And then I'd ask the question, and he'd go, no, 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 you don't get it. <laughs> Like, but that's the way it is with this, you know, whole theory of relativity. Like, it's very few people. Anybody in here understand it? Anyone? Anyone got one of those brains that just kind of gets it? Or no one's afraid to raise their hand because, you know, maybe they get it, but I ain't telling anybody I know that. Right? I, it's just so complex, so difficult to understand. But, but this, you know, and just so you know, I mean, I just, some of you may have no idea, and I'm going to say some words that I guess means something to people who understand relativity, and maybe it'll, it'll make sense to you, but I don't fully get it. So this is kind of what relativity is about. First of all, it's about the speed of light is constant no matter the motion of the object that's observing it. So in other words, speed of light is coming at you at a set speed, 186,000 miles per second, I think, at 
it's constant. So even if I start moving towards the light, it doesn't get faster. It still remains 186,000. So as my get closer to it, it doesn't increase the speed, I guess. That's what I'm told. Anyway, I don't get it. I don't know how that happens, but it does. Also, it says, and, and it says a lot of things. So this is another thing it says. E equals mc squared, by the way. That comes out of this whole thing, too, all right? Uh, and, and the other statement that I don't get, but I'll say it because this is what they say. Time moves slower for objects in motion than stationary objects. Yeah, time moves slower for m objects in motion than it does for stationary objects. I don't get it. Okay, time is like, yeah. Oh, yeah, don't, I don't get it. It's anyway, so this is but, so amazing, right? Complexity of this. But understand that even though this is super complex, it's actually kind of essential, right? We, we need people that know and understand the theories of relativity, general and special, because if we didn't, we wouldn't have things like satellites that stay in orbit, right? If they didn't understand relativity, the satellites would just be crashing down all around us, right? They wouldn't stay up there. They, we wouldn't have GPS. I mean, phones and GPS, what a great gift that is, right? So that you can put, you know, an address in your phone and it can track where you're at currently and be able to get you to where you need to go, right? Well, if we didn't understand or someone didn't understand the theory of relativity, we would not have GPS, uh, even, you know, our power generators, you know, electric power generators that we have that we in California, we need a lot of those, a lot more than the rest of the world, um, because, or at least the rest of America, because, you know, we have power outages. But anyway, even those would not work without the theory of relativity being understood by those who created it. Right? I mean, uh, uh, the Big Bang Theory, that came out of this perspective of the uh, theory of relativity. That's how we got to that. Now, whether that's true or not, we don't know, but that's a theory as well. Uh, all these things, understanding of black holes and, and space, and it's amazing all the stuff. that. We, it, so it's essential for us to have somebody that understands the theory of relativity. But it doesn't mean that all of us have to understand it. Because even though it's complex, we still can reap the benefits from the theory of relativity, even if we don't understand it. We, we still get to have phones that have GPS, right? Yeah, that can tell us where we're at and where we're going, right? I mean, that, that's, that's a pretty cool gift, right? We can still have power generators that work. We don't know how they work. We just know that they work. We know that if we, you know, plug them in and crank this thing and put gas in it, that it starts to work and it generates power, which is really cool. So when it's power's out, I can still have power and do some things, right? We don't have to know how it works, but we still get the benefits, even though we don't know how it works. And this is actually true of the mysteries of God. There are some aspects of God that are beyond our ability to understand. You know, we have an infinite God, and we're just finite individuals. So it kind of makes sense logically that an infinite God would have maybe a few pieces of him that we don't understand, right? Uh, uh, it's just reality. We can't fully comprehend something that's infinite. And so the mysteries of God are just like this, that, that they are essential, right? We, uh, there, there is truth in them. They, are, they dictate the rules of this creation that we have. They dictate who this God really is, and, and oftentimes who we are in relation to this God. But we can't fully understand it. But they're still essential. But also, even though we can't fully understand it, we still can reap the benefits. We 
get to enjoy the amazing benefits of having a God who is eternal. Don't really, kind of can't quite grasp it. We, we can reap the benefits of having a God who's Trinity, three in one. What? That doesn't make sense. We can reap the benefits of having a God who became incarnate in humanity. We're uh, going through Hark the Herald Angels Sing. We sang it earlier, and we're kind of on the second verse and using this, this old hymn to be a, a, a launch pad for our messages this Advent. And so let me read again the second verse. Christ, by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time, behold him come, offspring of the favored one. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hailed the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. This, this second verse, as you can tell, it focuses in on this very mysterious aspect of God called the incarnation. In theological terms, it's called the hypostatic union. But, but the whole concept is basically this, that, that Jesus was fully God and yet was fully man. That he was 100% divine and 100% humanity. 100% of both. He wasn't just part of one and part of another. He was 100% of both. Jesus is 200% individual. Kind of, we don't get that. You have Hall of something, it's you have 100%. And so we think of Jesus in a 100% kind of mindset. We tend to, to, because of the complexity of the incarnation, we tend to view Jesus either as just God or just human, just man. That, that's our tendency as we look at that and because we can't understand the two or we begin to morph it into all kinds of different things because we're trying to understand something that's totally complex and out inside or beyond our ability to understand. And so this morning what I would like to do is I, I, I don't know that I'm going to clear up this misunderstanding or this mystery that we have of God. And that's really not my intention. But I want to talk a little bit about it by first of all giving the evidences of both. That the evidence is that God really is divine and also the evidence that God is really human. I, I think we need to understand both sides of that. And then I want to take a little bit of time to kind of talk about, okay, what that interplay is like and how do we understand at least a little bit of this concept of the incarnation. So to start with, evidence of the Trinity. Excuse me, the divinity. The Trinity, that's a whole different message that'll take... <laughs> Do that another time. Uh, evidence of divinity. We start with, there's two key passages that deal with the fact that Jesus was God. First of all, John 1, verses 1 to 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made familiar verses, I'm sure, to you. But understand that the word in this is capitalized, right? In the beginning was the word. That word, word, is capitalized, right? Because it's talking about, and we see later in this chapter, that it's talking about Jesus. It says later the word became flesh, right? So this is Jesus who is talking about. This is the Son of God that is talking about. The, that Jesus was in the beginning, was with God, and more than that, was 
God. Hebrews is another, chapter 1 is another passage that speaks to this reality, gives evidence of the divinity, and it reads as follows, and it's again on the screen. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So again, he is the exact representation of God. He is God. Jesus also confirms and gives evidence that he is God by his own words. It wasn't like other people have attached the God label to Jesus. He even expected and talked to people like he was God. In John 10, 30, he says, I and the Father are one. Right? So, I am God. And then throughout the book of John, there are seven I am statements. And understand, most of us probably do, but I am is not just, you know, for us, it's just, you know, another thing. We use it all the time. I am going to the store. I am going to church. I am going to love my day. Right? We use it all the time. But Jews did not use I am because I am was the name of God. And it goes back to Moses, right, at the burning bush. Uh, God, God is speaking to him through the burning bush and telling Moses that he needed to go to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Moses says, well, that's great, but who should I tell him has sent me? And God speaks through the burning bush to say, I am sent you. That's what he's supposed to tell him. So that, that is the name of God that has been used. So Jesus, in the book of John, seven times in his life, Call, says, uses a statement, I am. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am, you know, the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Seven times in John, he uses I am, and he does it intentionally. He's not like going, oh, I didn't know that was really a special, you know, word that I shouldn't use, right? He, he knew what he was doing. He knew that he was God, and he was proclaiming it. So we see this is evidence that this Jesus that lived among us was indeed divine. He was God. And the importance of that is, in a sense, threefold. There's other importances, but three things I'll highlight this morning. First of all is the virgin birth. Without his divinity, the virgin birth really wouldn't be possible. It is because of the divinity, because he was divine, because he was God, that he was able to create something in, a vir- you know, in this virgin womb you know, that happens. Right? It, it, that's why he's able to have this virgin birth and why the virgin birth is important, as I kind of mentioned last week, is that you know, this is how Jesus, the, the human part of Jesus, which we'll get there in a minute, that's how he avoided, or this, he avoided the sinful nature piece. Sorry, it's hard to say. These terminologies are difficult. Uh, it's how he avoided the sinful nature. It's because Jesus was born of a virgin that he didn't have the sinful nature that was passed down to every human being after Adam in the garden, right? And so his divinity is important. The fact that he is God is important to the virgin birth. It's also important in the sense that God being with us, that this is not only a prophecy of the Old Testament, but this is the desire and the hope for all eternity is that God is going to be with his people, if God didn't actually come down and wasn't actually among us, living in with us here, right, then it would be something missing. So it's, it's essential and important that God came and lived among us, that Jesus was indeed God. And then finally, the resurrection. If, if Jesus wasn't God, then he couldn't have risen from the dead. Right? This, is, this is how that happens. 
right? Otherwise, he would have died and he would have stayed dead. And we would have no hope. But it's because Jesus was also divine that he was able to resurrect back to life for all eternity and give us that hope as well. So that's the evidence and the importance of his divinity. Now let's move on to humanity. Again, we move back to John chapter 1. Later on in that chapter where it reads this, as I already kind of alluded to. The, in verse 14, it says, The Word became flesh. The Word, capital W, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So again, this clearly points to the fact that not only was the Word God, but the Word was flesh. Hebrews, again, gives us uh, some more evidence like it did in the, his divinity. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, it reads as follows. For this reason, he had to be made, talking about Jesus, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, that he might make atonement for their sins of the people. So he was fully like them, fully human. These are the two key passages that, that speak to us and give evidence to us and tell us that this Jesus was not just God, but he was also man. He was also human, fully human. We see other evidences of his humanity from things like uh, the fact that he ate meals with the disciples, right? If he was just God doesn't eat, right? I mean, God doesn't, yet that's not how that works, right? So he had to be human in order, and so Matthew 26, 26, we see the Lord's Supper, and just another example of him eating and drinking. Uh, we see Jesus weeping uh, in John eleven thirty five, 35, which is a human trait. We see in Luke 24, 44, the fact that he, or Luke 24 in general, uh, we see that he is, uh, he bleeds and that he does die. These are all human attributes. God can't die, right? That's, he's eternal. That's part of his characteristics of who God is. And so Jesus, if he was only God and wasn't human, then he couldn't die. But we see that Jesus does die, so that means that he's also human. The importance of his humanity is, again, threefold. To get more than this, but these are three of the things that I'll highlight this morning. First of all, his fact that he is our, our human representative. You see, if he wasn't human, then his life that he lived would not have been a representation of us as humanity. It wouldn't have been, his life and his perfection and his death and his resurrection would have had no bearing on us. Because he would have just been this other creature or he would have been this God that lived all this and did all this. And he could have saved God, but he couldn't save humanity unless he was one of us fully one of us. He is the second Adam. Romans chapter, I believe it's five, talks about. That he, he is the second Adam. We had a first Adam in the garden back in Genesis, and, and he failed the test of temptation and gave in, and eventually, you know, he sinned, right? And, and, and that sin condemned all mankind. And then God creates this new Adam, this second Adam, Adam, through the virgin birth, and we have Jesus, who now is a full human, full God, lives and represents us on earth, lives a perfect life, faces the temptation that Adam faced, yet says no. And thus, when he dies and re resurrects, we all have this now hope because he was the first fruits 
of that resurrection that we now look forward to. If he was just a God and he was just God and resurrected, that doesn't mean that we're going to resurrect, but because he was human and resurrected, we're excited about that. That means something for us. So that's the evidence and the importance of his humanity. Now I want to take a little bit of time to talk about the essential, the essential truths within this complex and difficult to understand uh, incarnation theology, okay? Uh, and, and as is the case with many of these mysteries of God, we can actually say more about what it isn't than we can say about what it is. When you have something that is so far beyond your own personal experience, so far beyond anything that you've ever been able to understand or can understand in your world, it's impossible to fully describe what it is. But oftentimes you can describe what it is not. And so I have four statements to describe what the incarnation is not, and that helps to inform us on what it is, but we can't fully say what it is because it's beyond us. It's a mystery. So, first of all, it is, uh, the incarnation is not Jesus ceasing to be divine. It's not him ceasing to be God. He is fully divine. Sometimes we think that it, the, the, the concept is that, uh, that Jesus kind of made this almost like this deal with the devil, like I'm going to give up my divinity and go be a human being and live for 30 years in order to sacrifice myself for humanity because I love him so much. That he just, but he gave up his divinity. This is, that's not what happened here. He is still fully God in his living out his 33 years on this, on, uh, in the world. Second of all, it's not a... How many have ever watched um, Men in Black? Anyone watch the movie Men in Black? Okay, so this is an alien movie, and it has a reference that helps to communicate what this is not. Jesus, the incarnation is not an Edgar suit. Okay, so this is... If you haven't watched the movie, many of you haven't, I just want to explain. So this is an alien movie, and so a particular alien that's kind of like a cockroach comes to Earth, kills a human being and then grabs, basically strips the skin off of this human being, I know, kind of gross, and then he puts it on himself and walks around town like he's a human, all right? So I uh, uh, just want to be clear, this, this is not the incarnation. Jesus is not just, you know, he didn't create his nice little human suit that he put on, and then he came to earth, and he kind of pretended to be a human for 33 years, okay? This is not what the incarnation is like. It is also not, Jesus is not a demigod. He's not Hercules, okay? So uh, a demigod is the fact, you know, this is, you know, kind of Greek mythology here, okay? So Zeus, you know, has this human woman, Zeus is God, okay, a god. So he has this human wife, in essence, woman that he, he, he sleeps with, and they have a child, and its name is Hercules, right? So Hercules is like this half god, half-human kind of thing. He's got all these powers, and so he looks pretty cool in humanity, but he's lesser than a god. He's not quite as strong as the gods and this kind of thing. This is, again, not the incarnation. Jesus is not just half-human and half-god. It's not this, you know, kind of melding or merging of the two into one creature. It's also not, the incarnation is not Jesus or God indwelling a human being. 
So it's not like there's this human being that's there, already has person and has is, is been created, and then God comes and just indwells that person and gives them these different powers and abilities to be able to kind of function for 33 years and do all this kind of stuff. So it's not like a possession or it's an indwell. It's not that either. Okay, God, uh, Jesus is fully God and fully man the whole time. Matter of fact, even today, right? Once, once Jesus was born on Christmas, he kind of has this human identity, this human nature that is with him for all eternity now. Okay. Now, I want to dip my toe into what can be very, I mean, we've got to be really careful with what I'm going to say next, okay? Uh, I'm going to, I want to take a little bit of time to talk about this divinity and humanity and how do they work together. Now, again, we don't know. It's a mystery. It's beyond us. But some scholars have come up with some perspectives that help us to maybe understand some of it. Because here is the issue, and this is the struggle that has led scholars to come up to some of these, with, with this, these statements. Uh, it, is Jesus, you know, how, how does this inner, I mean, did Jesus really live the full humanity? Did Jesus' divinity, did it really experience all that humanity experiences? Right? We, ha- we have this, you know, like, did he really get tempted? We have this passage in James 1.13. It says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. So if God cannot be tempted, so let's take Jesus a- in the desert after his baptism. He gets tempted by the devil. Well, if he's God, that means, I mean, tempta- part of temptation has to be that it's actually like you're tempted to do it, or you could potentially do it. Well, there's no potentiality in God to sin. So is, was he really tempted? Or did Jesus just kind of go through this kind of, you know, role acting? Oh, 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 I don't know. Maybe I should make that bread. Oh, I don't know. Right? I mean, is that what's happening? Or wh- what's going on? Did he really get tempted or did he not get tempted? And the, and the problem is, not just with James 1.13, but then you have this Hebrews 4.15 passage. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. So what is it? Did, did he get, was he tempted or was he not? And so it's these kind of, you know, uh, kind of wrestling matches that we have with this mysterious reality and truth of the incarnation that leads scholars to describe, some scholars to describe it in this way. And again, I'm taking a step out in this, but understand we cannot be dogmatic about what I'm just about to tell you. This is just maybe a way it works, but we don't know for sure. What it seems like is happening in, uh, uh, in the incarnation is that when Jesus divinity connected with Jesus' humanity, that Jesus, in order to experience all, really experience all of the human life and experience of growing up, maturing, and developing, and all of that, and also being tempted and, uh, and wrestling with pain and the suffering and the struggle of human life, he chose to not tap into his divinity while he was on earth. He had that divinity always with him. He always had access to all of the abilities and powers and characteristics of who that God is, but he chose not to tap into those in order to perform miracles or to resist temptation. 
He chose instead to live by the Spirit. You see, at his baptism, the Holy Spirit, like a dove, came down and came upon him, right? The idea was that he was indwelled with the Holy Spirit. See, this is what we live, right? We're struggling to live this life out, and we can do it because we have the Holy Spirit with us. And so Jesus, in essence, in his humanity, was choosing not to tap into his divinity, but instead was choosing to use the Holy Spirit as his guide through everything. So it was the Holy Spirit. It was him. It was his humanity through the power of the Holy Spirit that allowed him to do the miracles, to know things that he wouldn't have otherwise known, to be able to even make declarations that he is God. It wasn't because of his divinity that he made those statements, because of the Holy Spirit's revelation. So I say all that. Maybe that helps. Maybe it doesn't. But understand, we can't be too dogmatic about that. And there's some scholars who would disagree with that characterization of the incarnation. But I offer it just as maybe an encouragement to uh, have an idea of maybe how this works out. The reality is we don't know for sure. We can't ever fully know. I I don't even think even when we get to eternity, when we get to heaven, I don't think we're going to understand it. I think it's always going to be beyond us because God is always going to be infinite and we're always going to be finite. So there's certain aspects of God we will never fully understand. But understand as well, and this, this is an important thing, is that it is about the character of Jesus. It is about the incarnation that all heresies and Christian cults arise. It's always about Jesus and who he is. Whether he's fully God, whether he's fully man, or a mix of the two, all of the heresies that lead to Christian cults, it all has to do with the character of Jesus. And so this is an essential truth that we have to understand. And again, obviously, we can't fully understand it. We at least need to know what it's not, right? So that we can be careful as we talk about it and as we believe in this amazing and awesome truth. But even though it's a complex, mysterious truth that we'll never fully understand, the great news is that we still get to reap the benefits. We don't have to understand it to get the benefits. And, and I just want to kind of go through at the end of this message here some of those, five of those benefits that we get. And there's so many more. Again, this is just a, a representative, a representation of some of those benefits. But they're big ones. Because Jesus is fully God and fully human, he has taken our punishment. Right? He, he's taken our punishment. If he wasn't fully God, he couldn't have been perfect. If he wasn't fully human, he couldn't have been our representative. He couldn't have taken our sin. But because he's both, he takes our punishment. He has appeased God's wrath. What an amazing and awesome and powerful truth and benefit that we get. Because Jesus is fully God and Jesus is fully human, he purchased our freedom. He is, we were stuck in our sin. Sinful nature had its grip on us and there's nothing we could do about it. But because he was fully God and was able to be born without sin, because he was fully human, was able to live a perfect life and then give his life as a ransom for us and break the chains of sin, we now once again have free will. We can choose to sin or we can choose to live rightly. We have that option again. It's because that Jesus was fully God and fully man. 
because Jesus was fully God and fully man, we receive the imputed righteousness of Jesus, which means that because that, that, that Jesus' perfect life that he lived, we get the credit for. Because he lived this perfect life, but then still faced punishment, even though he didn't deserve it, he took the punishment. So now that perfect life is there for ours, for us. It's there for us to take and to, to enjoy, and we take and enjoy that through our faith in Jesus. Because Jesus was fully God and fully man, we are reconciled to God. We, we, we can be in relationship with our Creator again. We have this opportunity to, to spend all eternity with Him, to live in what how, and how He's created us to be perfectly, to enjoy that for all eternity. And because Jesus was fully God and fully man, there's resurrection for all of us. You see, because He couldn't, of arisen, he couldn't have risen from the dead if he wasn't God. But if he wasn't man, it wouldn't have mattered that he died or that he rose. So the fact that he was fully God and fully man means that the resurrection is something that's for us all. That we all have, have something to look forward to. That death is not the end for us. That it's the beginning of something new. The death is just that transition point from the struggles of this sinful life that we have to live and the eternity with him in love and perfect relationship. It's all about the incarnation. It's all about this reality that we can't fully understand. It's a mystery. How does this work? Fully God, fully human. How do they interact? How does, what does this look like? I, I don't know. I don't get it. You know, unlike the theory of relativity, there's some, you know, in the world that can understand the theory of relativity, and thank God for that. But when it comes to the incarnation, there's no human that can understand this. We've got our ideas, and we, you know, different people kind of try to extrapolate it out, but every time you start to extrapolate it out, it gets more and more dangerous and leading towards heresy. Because the reality is, we can't fully know it. Worship team, why don't you come up as just a kind of a concluding thought maybe for everyone this morning is that I, I think what this, what this teaches us is that we have to be comfortable with not knowing. See, really since the, the Enlightenment, you know, human, human beings, they, they really want to know. And maybe even before, maybe this is just a condition of the fall, I don't know. But we just, we want to know. If we can figure it out, if there's a way to figure it out, then we, we've got to figure it out. And we're going to try to figure it out. We're going to do whatever we can. But when we have a God who's beyond us, we have to get comfortable with saying, I don't know. We have to, we have to embrace that tension of these truths that we read in Scripture. We go, it says he's fully God, but he died says he's fully human, but he was divine. What? Right? It's a tension. And we as Christians have to learn to accept the realities, right? I mean, we, God is not worth worshiping if we can fully understand him because then he's just like us. There better be mysteries like this that are beyond us 
Because that's what drives us to worship. We realize he's different than us. Yeah, we were created in his image, but we're not him. All right, worship team, why don't you come up? During this Christmas season, may we all continue to worship the Lord in this. And, and may these complex, difficult, impossible to understand truths be a motivation and an inspiration for our worship of God. May we not let it be a, a, something that, that hinders our faith, where we begin to say, well, you know, I can't understand this, so this doesn't make sense, and so I'm not going to believe. No, this is where faith comes in. This is where we trust what we do know, and we bank on that, and we praise the Lord for these mysteries that are beyond our abilities to know, but yet we still get the benefits of these ministries. Amen.